everyone. Matt here. This is War Machine, the podcast of the Radical Theology Seminar. This episode is a conversation between me and our friend Matt Valor about Bernard Stiegler's book, Techniques and Time, The Fault of Epimetheus. Uh, so the way this happened is several weeks ago, I sent Matt a Marx quote. Uh, that's from the first part of the book, and he replied by asking me if, if I'd ever read Stiegler's Techniques and Time. And, you know, I replied, it just so happens that's where I found this quote. Um, so it's kind of a weird coincidence. And then we got to talking about it and decided we would read it together. We've already read through the first two chapters, uh, which are quite long. There's only four chapters in this book. Uh, and we've met and talked about those already. Uh, it's quite a dense text, uh, you know, not impenetrable, but it's, it feels very French, and I wonder about the translation at points, but um, it's just nice to be reading it with someone else and, you know, working through it that way. So that's what you're going to hear in this episode, is my conversation with Matt about the third chapter of Bernard Stiegler's Techniques and Time. Uh, in thinking about setting this up, I was wondering if I ought to provide a synopsis uh, of the first two chapters, but I don't think it's really necessary. A lot of the same questions are explored throughout what we've read so far. And oh yeah, by the way, Techniques and Time is a trilogy. I have no idea if we'll end up reading all of it, but we're going to make it through this first volume at least. Um, all right, that's all I have to say about that. Enjoy. How's it going? Oh, it's all right. I've had a, I've had a full-on day, but it's all right. Yeah. What have, you, what have you been doing? Kids football. Oh, that sounds exhausting. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm assistant coach with my son's team. Okay. And um, yeah, he takes it very seriously, and he's pretty good. He's probably the best player at his club. Yeah, but you're not biased. You're not biased or anything. No, I legit he is. Uh he um he his club's in the second tier. Huh? And uh he should probably play for a better club huh? and have better coaching. You've got like boys that I just sort of don't want they'll back away from a fight. What's the point of uh playing soccer? Yeah, exactly. I'm so, sorry, I'm yeah. sorry, football. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's important to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man it was a bunch of them didn't turn up I just couldn't believe it oh really they were playing the team like they run away with the league they're so much better than everyone in the league so it was oh. like it was guaranteed battering yeah. and uh, but people didn't show I just can't accept that yeah that's not okay I mean did you, did you think that these kids didn't show up because they knew that was a likely possibility yeah yeah it, it's just a and it's the biggest problem with the team they just lack the kind of mental resilience to, and that is at the root of why they're not a lot better than they are. They, they they're not all technically incredible, but they yeah. they could just get so much better results if they just uh, yeah had more grit. But, yeah, it's funny. I I was never much of a of a football player myself. I mean, I was more of a defender. I remember at that time I had it seemed like unlimited energy. I could run across the field all day long and not really get tired. 
and that would be great I, we could do with some of that <laughs> it's like a little bit of a kind of seriously you're 15 years old like what have you been doing just yeah make and, an effort <laughs> and and really like on defense you know you're not getting any scoring any points yeah. so the so the points for for me were just like you know just getting in there and kicking somebody in the, in the shins you know yeah and you're not getting through that's the thing like you you shall not pass that's yeah the, yeah yeah I think that's the thing about defense yeah and the better the team was the more they got kicked <laughs> yeah yeah because the more frustrated we were <laughs> right you're gonna pay one way or another for this for this victory you know, anyway uh so anyway it's been it's been a challenging day i don't know what the final score was but it was at least 12 nil oh <laughs> brutality finish him <laughs> <laughs> all right well this shit happens yeah anyway well, uh steve is interesting uh full disclosure i'm not all the way through it Mainly because I started this morning, <laughs> but I did, <laughs> but I made, it, never. I made it a fair way through. I made it yeah. to page one fifty nine. Um, okay. So a, a good effort, I'd say. It's not a bad effort for a day. Yes, you're you're a bit short. Um, yeah, and, and I would have finished it too if it weren't for my meddling kids. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have I have other yeah. things to do, laundry and so on. But um, yeah, I I found this this chapter really fascinating, especially the sort of Deridian thread that runs throughout, or at least through the first part of it. I'm not really sure where to start, actually. Yeah, me neither. I, I also found it really interesting, and again, it particularly sort of played off other things that I'd been reading. Um, particularly the things I've been reading by Terence Deacon, uh-huh. who I mentioned to you before, you know, the guy that, um, you remember the message I sent you that you then put onto the podcast episode about Deacon? Yeah, he's the uh, he's the teleodynamics guy. Yeah. So he's really interested in that question of how does life evolve from inorganic uh-huh. matter? But he also wrote a book called The Symbolic Species, which is about the development of language. And that was definitely a crossover with Stiegler here because of the question of, uh, you know, there's a lot in the symbolic species about research that's been done with like, you know, chimpanzees or like sort of the nearest you would get to a kind of human that could work with, you know, and there was like some language capabilities but it was so limited and it was like even if they worked and worked and worked and worked with um i can't remember i think it was chimpanzees but it might be something else it was just like the the range of what was possible was just so little and the key point that he was making which is also what stiegler is making is that um language requires abstraction and so um, that was that was one thing I sort of latched onto that Stiegler seems to me to be really critiquing Leroy Guhan when he took the development of technical language, it, which I understood to be sort of, you know, language that could accomplish some tasks, but hadn't yet got to the point of language that could develop consciousness in the way that we now think of the human. And what Stiegler's saying is that's ridiculous. All, all language is an abstraction mm-hmm. it involves an abstract it involves the symbolic uh categories that then allow you not just to say the thing you're saying but to actually have the potential to say other things um right 
And, and so there's no it, it, talking about like a technical language that evolves prior to a more symbolic language. It doesn't make any sense. And um, all of Deacon's research would absolutely say the same. So that resonated with me. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's really fascinating because on one hand, the sort of standard accounts, whether it's in religious terms, like Rousseau was doing, uh, kind of giving an anthropological account of the fall, it's always that the rupture is what inaugurates grammar and what, so Stiegler is, um, I think what he wants to uh, contend vis-a-vis -vis Derrida is that it's grammar all the way down. Mm -hmm. and, and, and he sort of unpacks that in different ways. He doesn't mention person here, but I couldn't help but think there was probably some, uh, some correlative work to be done with yeah. persons, uh, some different forms of semiotics. Well, that's what Deacon does. Ah. Yeah. So for purse, you know, you've got the icon, you've then got the index, and then you've got the symbol. Mm -hmm. And so the icon is the image of something. Um, so uh, a chimpanzee can work uh, with iconicity because, you know, they see a banana. It's like, oh, fuck, that's a banana. I want that. And then you have an index, which is the sign of something that you know means that something else is around. So like you smell the pheromones of a mate and you're like, fuck, I want that. Uh -huh. uh, but it's not, you haven't seen the mate, you just indexically registered. But symbolic signs then are structured according to difference in a system. And that's what only humans can do. And that's why language as a function of the human species is so extraordinary and different from anything else. And that's where... Deacon saying, yes, it absolutely re relies on abstraction into a system of difference. Um, and right. that, that uh, as Stevie was saying, you know, no, no one has yet, for all that uh, Derrida has um, problematized uh, de Saussure in terms of his structuralist linguistics, nobody has sort of disproved Saussure that language is a function of a structure of differences. I mean, it's sort of, is a kind of a, an accepted, yes, of course. I mean, of course signs are determined by the fact that they're different from all these other things and all that Derrida does with the Swasur, I say all that was massive but essentially <laughs> it's straightforward is saying yeah it's not just to differ it's also to defer so we've not just got a synchronic difference in that structure of symbols we've now got a diachronic in other words a time yeah. difference right that was something that was really interesting in here where he's talking about difference as time as such. And since he's sort of placing difference in an anterior position to the emergence of language as such, I felt like he was giving a sort of a certain kind of accelerationism. Oh, and I, I wrote here in the margins, mm. difference as the motor of accelerationism. Um, and I think that yeah, sort of like really interesting. maps onto his main thesis or, 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 or thing that he's trying to attempt, which is to, uh, which we read in the very beginning, conjugate the question of techniques with that of time. Yes, I, I agree. And so there's two things in there for me. One is, what is the rationale that allows him to say that technicity births time? <laughs> That's the first thing. The second thing is he has a particular thing about acceleration which you know which feels to me 
not unrelated, but not exactly the same as that first question. Mm-hmm. So I understand the first question about the structure of technicity to time, that the argument, and t- tell me if this is how you read it, but I understood the argument to be, um, you know, all from the analysis of dull structures and whatever. Yeah. Actually, it's the use of the tool that creates the opportunity for the brain to develop rather than the other way around. It's the use of the tool that actually then creates this reflection with the self so that this emerging animal, uh, a sort of proto-human, can start to imagine the anticipation that is required in the kind of planning for the use of the tool. And as soon as you do that, you then structure time, which I feel like is was sort of brought up in earlier chapters. Right. Um, and as soon as you bring in that anticipation, then you, in some sense, emerge as a being towards death and you're yeah, doing cave you're painting in, about your spiritual and you're in Heidegger land and you are uh, yeah. not, and you're a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's the order it works. That's how it goes. Yeah. But the acceleration thing, I can see why in the current technical world, you would mm-hmm. say there was an acceleration of time as a result of the, sort of um, almost uh, proliferation of technicity. But I don't feel like I've really heard that argument in any sort of coherent detail from Stiegler. I just, he just sort of, sort of set it up a bit. I agree. It's not, that idea is not in the text. So to come back to Deacon, Uh um, so in the symbolic species, the thing that's really interesting about Deacon's argument is that essentially he's positing that language almost functions like uh it um it, it's not a parasite but like a codependent organism because he says if you look at the speed at which language evolves it's far faster than anything that you would say like a biological species would evolve uh-huh. so the evolution of language in the human brain it, it is almost like it's something that can't be limited to the human brain so now i've read stiegler i'm like well Okay, this is actually, it's not quite the same as saying language is like a separate species that co-evolves with the human. It's actually saying um, language is produced by technicity, which is the argument, I think. As soon as the hands do stuff, the mouth is free to speak. So the development of tools and speech is concurrent for Stiegler. And that allows the human to evolve at a much faster rate with language and tools than evolution had before that been able to progress and that would be a root of of a kind of accelerationism because the relationship between tools and this is where it gets to the end of the chapter that you you've maybe not quite got to yet which is about the then coming back to the exteriorization of memory uh so it's the exteriorization of memory into tools right um, and language and things that are outside us that um, means that the evolution of the human is not happening in the same way as, say, you know, dogs evolved or fish evolved. Or... And I thought this was one of the more interesting points. So in the last chapter, he's leaning more into uh, Rousseau's account. You know, technology exteriorization is understood in prosthetic terms. And then here he says that a tool is not a prosthetic. In fact, the tool is a determinative factor, if not agent, in the making of man, 
um, that in gets the invention to, of the human. In the invention of the human, there's this one section here, uh, and this actually begins in language. This first sentence is uh, quoting Leroy Goran. We arrived at the concept as being a secretion of the anthropian's body and brain. And now in Stiegler's voice, its body and brain are defined by the existence of the tool, and they thereby become indissociable. It would be artificial to consider them separately, and it will therefore be necessary to study techniques and its evolution, just as one would study the evolution of living organisms. So he's like, yes, we still need to do the, give the zoological account. We still need to give the biological account. But this is where he wants to give the technological account. And by technological, he's, he's using that in a specific way. Uh, there's, a, there's a sort of ontological quality uh, yeah. to it. It says the technical object in its evolution is at once inorganic matter, inert, and organization of matter. So anyway, uh, I just thought that was really interesting. The sort of at once you have this exteriorization that involves anticipation, but this should not be thought as happening before the use of tools. It's that these things co-arise together. Yeah. One part of his argument, he doesn't really center on very often, but I feel like is there. I think he thinks that technicity is just a feature of reality as such. And that it just so happens that given the uh, climate environment circumstances that we have, that this whole process was able to come about, that difference mm. was, was able to manifest differently. Yeah. And that yeah, got me thinking. I mean, it's a, that's a really interesting thing, I think, to have in mind, you know, just reading Stiegler about is technicity a function of the of the universe or is it something that is specific to humans? I feel like I've been asking myself similar questions in relation to work I've been doing with Latour and agency um, and Latour's idea of the social which is, so Latour wants to reframe the social as associations. And so, you know, me and this phone have an association, uh, as I do with this desk, because um, although, you know, here I am, I'm the human, I clearly have more agency than the phone or the desk because I could smash them up if I wanted and they can't smash me up. But I, the, the the phone actually has a lot of agency in my life because I shape a lot of what I do around the fact that I have this phone and what this phone can afford me and what it can't afford me, and so so the social becomes reimagined not as um, something between humans but as something between humans and objects. Mm. And the interesting question I think in there, and I've been trying to work out, is can you describe the social without the humans? So it's a similar question. I think can you describe technicity? without the humans because all of that comes down to this question of a lot of it feels like you're trying to evade anthropocentrism yeah as you know i've done i've tried to do work on that and it, it always feels harder to get away from anthropocentrism yeah even if you said okay we're going to go to like the far reaches of the like furthest rainforests where you know that no human is mm -hmm. um you've still got weather patterns that are like affected by human behavior now or, uh, you know, there's still like nuclear fallout in the in the Earth's atmosphere that wasn't there if it wasn't for humans. So it's like, is there any space left for thinking outside the outside the human? I, I feel like that has an effect on how we think these things through. I, I think you're right. And the question that you're asking about uh, Latour and does sociality occur as you were kind of framing that question out, it brought to mind 
something that's in Stiegler here, where he's sort of making this correlation between mobility and the process of liberation. Is that it? Yes. Yes. Okay. Because yeah, so the animal increases its mobility. Yes. So like bigger animals can cover larger distances. Yes. So here, I've got this bit highlighted. The conquest of mobility qua supernatural mobility qua speed is more significant than intelligence. Or rather, intelligence is but a type of mobility, a singular relation of space and time, which must be thought from the standpoint of speed as its decompositions, and not conversely. It would be necessary, moreover, to analyze the relation of difference to speed. Difference is itself also a conjunction of space and time, more originary than their separation, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, I'm sort of taking that and what you were just saying now about the tour, the question about sociality, you could do so without appeal to language as such, but by appeal to articulation. By articulation, I also mean mobility, that there's intelligence in mobility. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess I don't know what's at stake in the question other than I guess maybe it is the question of anthropomorphism, which I don't think you can get around that question. I think trying to think, you know, imagine if you're a, a gnat or a, a bat or these are all useful things, but these are all still rendered through human language. Yes. No, I, and I, so that I think is a conclusion I'd come to as well. I suppose the reason I bring that all up in this context is because I feel like the and, and this is maybe where I still don't feel like I quite have really got my head around what Stiegler is or the, or what the implications might be of what Stiegler is saying is that it feels like there's a technicity that uh, even if it maybe couldn't be thought without the human, so maybe it can be thought without the human, but even mm -hmm. if it couldn't be and it co-evolves mm -hmm. with the human, it certainly feels like it's beyond the human in the way that language uh. Is the, concern, is, is the concern like, okay, if that's what he's actually about and he's giving this sort of more ontological account of technicity that precedes what we will eventually call the human in its full tool-making uh, glory, <laughs> is that in and of itself a form of anthropomorphism? I mean, I think yes, but I think, I think that, yeah. So what Stiegler is doing is also, to some extent, mythological as well. He's just giving a new account. As interesting as I, I find the story that he's telling, I don't necessarily take it to be like, well, this is how it really happened. <laughs> right. Okay. So it's more about the implications of if this was an origin story, what would it mean? Yeah. And I think this gets to the question like we were talking last week of like, what does he want to do here? And maybe right. at some point he's going to move into some sort of zone of intervention be like, okay, if you believed all the bullshit I just told you, then here's what we can do with it. Yeah. I, I I suppose though, uh, just I think on the anthropomorphic thing, mm -hmm. I don't I don't think I have a clear concern. I don't think that's why I'm trying to express this. It's more about the problematic of the thinking. So what I try to do with anthropomorphism is to say, okay, so you've got this problem of how do you talk about the human outside human language, but then you've also got the idea, you know, the the thing with uh, Catherine Yusuf and and the kind of yeah. okay, you've got. Actually, you have to think about the construction of the anthropos in anthropomorphism. So what, what are you actually constructing? And that's part of Stiegler's um, argument here, but from a totally different point of view, which is at what point do you insert the break that says, you know, no right. longer 
well, I, I still haven't got my technical terms in order, but you know, no longer this other thing that was like a different species before us, <laughs> um, and now it's human. Uh, it's more like a sort of evolving moment. Yeah. Then when you start talking about like the articulation of animals as you know m- movement that comes before language, and then you get to the kind of technicity which is then in in the human or the sort of proto-human or whatever you want to describe it you get the use of the hands which might result in speech it feels like it does problematize the idea of the human because um what are we and even raises that he's like we already have we in fact passed through the human already like might we be something else already like yeah he definitely has his own variety of post-humanism going on here it's an evolutionary post-humanism yes yes i agree with that yeah where He's giving a certain account of the origin of the human in, in as much as that's even possible to do, but he's not in any way, and he's, he's refusing to do so in a way that provides some sort of, how do I say it, rupture. He wants to fill out the story that Rousseau is telling and the story that uh, Leroy Gruan is, is telling and say, yeah, they got some things right, but they both inserted this sort of absolute origin from for, for Rousseau it's there from the beginning it's it's sort of theological it's the fall yeah and then he's just kind of you know sorting out well what does that mean anthropologically the Regan is doing a more zoological account and so I guess what's what Stiegler's offering here is yeah on one hand as we've been saying an ontological account technicity but one that is very sort of careful not to make any sort of strict differentiation between the animal and the human. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, In fact, let's see. uh, What is in question is not emptying the human of all specificity, but radically challenging the border between the animal and the human. Which is, so that's what he's saying Leroy Gohan did. No, I think this is like what he's putting forward. And there's like four points that he follows upon it. Maybe we can pick up on another thread here. The first is, if the privilege granted to linear writing by Hegel and Rousseau is logocentric, two, um, if metaphysics is logocentric and vice versa, three, if all metaphysics are humanist and vice versa, four, then all humanisms are logocentric. So this kind of fucked with my head a little bit. This is kind of channeling into, I'm I'm writing a piece on on origins at the moment. It's just going to be a short thing where I in the beginning, I want to talk about the impossibility of origins. And then through the film Prometheus. Okay, I've never seen that. It's an origin story, but it problematizes origins and it, ha- it ends in horror. So I, I want to okay. I, I use that to you know, parse some of these things out. But then what yeah. I want to do is after that part, I want to give an ontology of the temple to give like a theological rendering of origins that is, quote unquote, the origin of origins on the origin of origins. So it's a little bit like cheeky. Like I just told you how you can't do origin. Then I'm going to, I'm going to tell you an origin story right now, but it's also that the first part is also the impossibility and the, the necessity of origins. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. But that's really interesting. The idea that it's almost like you don't build the temple until the thing you want the temple to represent has already left you. It's yeah. how I understood what you were saying. Yeah. So there's a sort of Lacanian thread to pick up on with that, that I, I don't necessarily want to make overt. Um, the temple is the sort of earthly manifestation of the trace. Maybe yeah, is one, okay. is one way yeah, to say Yeah, yeah. I, like, I really like that a lot. It's brilliant, Matt. 
I mean, I've thought about origins for a long time uh, since I studied Derrida because, because you know, for De- Derrida, the logocentrism is the, that's how he defines the basic problem in right. Right. Uh, of grammatology. Um, I, 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 I was thinking about server farms when you were talking, because I was thinking about that anyway with Stiegler, like what's the current technological exteriorization? I mean, there's, mm. there's all sorts, there's roads, buildings, houses, whatever, yeah. desks, that, but feels like when you said about the temple, I was thinking like if that's like if that's a monument to a trace, then you've got these um, you know these massive data warehouses uh, that are kind of you know storing all the world's information um, that is somehow already past. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's sort of live, but it's also it's only there because it's already happened. So it becomes this kind of vast memory bank. But that feels like that's completely changed the way that human, like even in like the space of 10, 15 years, is completely changed the way that humankind is, is uh, that we're organizing ourselves or not, or being organized by technicity because of what that, that vast exterior memory bank is now able to generate. Yeah, no, I think that's really fascinating. And I think we touched on this uh, in a, like when we talked uh, another time, but of thinking about, historical epochs in terms of um in terms of technology right so stone age bronze age iron age all these different sort of technological milieus make different kinds of articulations possible Mm. my my brain's going in a million to fucking directions at once this whole topic or like constellation of topics is really hard to fucking stay focused on like one thing because it's, I it's completely feel the same. Yeah. It's I'm loving it, but it, it, there's too many things going at once. Just to say, Matt, that it's interesting you're talking about Prometheus because this whole, but this book is subtitled the myth, myth of Epimetheus. Yeah. I don't know much about this. I think as Plato tells that story, Prometheus and Epimetheus are brothers that are like two different approaches. So Prometheus is the planner. The, mm-hmm. the Prometheus has foresight. So uh, it's the fault of Epimetheus, isn't it? The, first, yeah. the subtitle. Yeah. Uh, and Epimetheus is the one who acts, like names all the animals or whatever, and then runs out of names because he's not thought it through in advance. Right. Uh, and so I think there's like a Epimetheus doesn't plan ahead, whereas Prometheus plans ahead. So I think this idea about the, which I think is related to the idea of anticipation, which then is, creates the structure of time. Uh, right. for Stigler. Um, I was yeah. thinking that was an interesting link with what you were talking about using Prometheus, the film. Right. And there's something in here too, that kind of ties in, uh, ties in with this. It's the first time the book has referenced the fault. Um, and it kind of gets to the heart of some of the things we're talking about and what I want to say uh, in that piece on page 142. The interior and the exterior are the same thing. The inside is the outside. Since man, the interior, is essentially defined by the tool, the exterior. However, this double constitution is also that of an opposition between the interior and the exterior, or one that produces an illusion of succession. Where does this illusion come from? To anticipate the next section, let us say that it comes from an originary forgetting, the fault of Epimetheus. All right, there we are. Yes. It's an original okay. forgetting. So uh, I'll be really interested to hear how he tells that story because I don't know much about all I know I, is what I said is like a very vague this was in Plato. So yeah, I don't I don't either. So yeah. Yeah, in, interesting. Originally forgetting. 
in 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 a sense, uh, the the entire edifice of logocentrism is a result of this originary forgetting, is it not? Yes, although, so I think this is part of Derrida that I have never, I sort of feel like when I'm reading it, I want to say, yes, I feel like you're saying something really important. And then <laughs> when I come to re-articulate it, I can never quite do it. Right. Uh, and I don't know if it's just because ultimately it's doublespeak and that's the point of it. Like what does originary forgetting, if you sort of start defining it too much, does it break down? You know, I, just, just, just to stick with Stapler's account of it. I mean, here he precedes that uh, bit about originary forgetting, about saying the interior and the exterior are the same thing. Yeah, this is the rupture. The fault of Epimetheus is the thing that sort of splits reality. As I mean, there's different. Oh, I see. So it's the forgetting of the fact that it was all the same, and then pretending there's two. Right. Yeah. Okay. Which allows you to sort of locate yourself in space and time, yeah. being towards yeah, death. Yeah. Blah blah blah. Yeah, that's really okay. That's very interesting. Okay, so you so you you start to not acknowledge that the exterior is in fact you, right? I mean, theologically, this is classic account of the fall. Right, you're separated. You're ejected right. from the ejected yeah, from yeah. the from the garden. Because another thing that was said on that podcast episode, I wasn't so familiar with was Deleuze. And you guys were talking about that each of us is multiple people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was in that episode I was listening. It was just it was this interesting thing about the self, you know. And then um, you know Levi Bryan, I was reading about that. You know, he's saying essentially we want to talk about things as objects, but within the object, there's this ma- massive split difference. You know, you're not known to yourself even within the same object. That that was just what uh, the idea of a kind of originally forgetting between exterior and exterior, and you know, I'm thinking about all oh, this stuff is me, but I just forgot it's me. But then, which me am I thinking about? Any, you know, I'm constructing a notion of me as an individual, anyway, aren't I? Sort of psychologically, which itself is a, a sort of act of breaking myself off from other things that probably are myself. I just mm. have constructed them without them. You know, I constructed myself without them. Yeah, I think the sort of mapping of the subject-object split onto that phenomenon we're trying to describe in different ways is is right. This is this is part of the difficulty in talking about it is you get all of it at once, and yet that all at onceness is mythologically articulated because this is obviously a very complex process that right. involved a lot of moving parts, right, <laughs> over yeah, a very who, who long time. Knows how to describe it anyway, or even knows what they're describing. There is a before and an after. It can only be captured in the image of an apple. <laughs> right. Right. You know, and I think there's a reason why we have those kinds of stories. You know, I'm not going to read this book to my kid. <laughs> I <laughs> you know I mean? I'm going to tell him about the apple. Yeah. Um, so just on the Derrida and writing thing. Yeah. Yeah. So one of, the, one of the key things that Derrida said was that, you know, he's constantly flipping these uh, hierarchies. And so the, the kind of originary uh, one for Derrida was to flip the relationship between writing and speech because um, it was like assumed that speech came first. And then at some point later, humankind developed the technology to write. But essentially what Derrida was saying was that the ability to speak comes from a kind of writing of language in your mental apparatus. Um, and somehow that kind of that abstraction of symbolized, structural symbolization is, has been written somewhere mm-hmm. and it had to be written in order for you to then articulate speech. Um, 
and so he's problematizing that by saying there has to be a kind of writing that goes on that's anterior to speech in order for speech to be possible. It's all in the context of Derrida problematizing origins with problematizing logocentrism. Yeah. Uh, it felt relevant to the question of that originary forgetting. Yeah. Uh, and so that kind of that evolutionary process where language is birth is part of that technicity. So that's the exteriorization which creates the interiorization in the same movement. Mm-hmm. It feels very similar to the kind of the, whatever the writing is in the neurological system that provides the capacity to speak. It's like that has to happen somehow one at the same time. It's fascinating. I mean, what I understand Stiegler to be doing is giving a sort of biological account of, of difference. Um, a ge- mm. genetic or generative account of difference as somewhat synonymous with zoological differentiation. I, I don't know if I'm reading too much into what he's saying. Um, no, no, I think that's correct. I, I, that's how I read it. And it, but it, yeah. but um, that this zoological differentiation because of what you said before very well about the the articulation of movement um, means that to differ also becomes to defer. Um, right. And so once that get once you start making tools and you start getting anticipation, that articulation takes on an even more developed the capacity for difference within within that sort of zoological evolutionary process. Yes, yeah. So it's like almost like difference that has emerged into a new milieu, I guess. Language in the way that we experience it and use it is just a continuation of a process that had already been underway but it's one that had been underway differently in a different milieu yeah i thought that account of continuity was really interesting to think about and helpful in giving an account of he's articulating a kind of post-humanism in as much as language can no longer be understood to be a strictly human affair or at least language in as much as it is a manifestation of difference or the, the gramme. I don't know how you say that in French. Yeah, I think gramme. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a particular manifestation of it. Yeah, that last move, I'm not saying that I think you're wrong. I just mm-hmm. feel a little bit unsure about it. Oh, listen, I am w- perfectly willing to accept that I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, I uh, well, as in... I, I think the implications of what you're saying there is that that gram, if you were going to think grammar like that, you were thinking of it, it has to be thought as like structured into the, uh, at least zoological evolution. Uh-huh. Um, and that's where I think is, is the grammar in that zoological evolutionary process, or is the grammar the thing that emerges with the advent of a specific kind of technicity that that allows the human okay. to develop something and it's the it was sort of latent but it gets produ- produced by that moment this is, I mean? a gr- this is a great question i i'm reading this as it's the the former that mm. it's sort of it's anterior and sort of continuous with with language but I, that could be a shit take <laughs> no it's, it's it's really helpful i mean it's, it's one to hold open i suppose as we keep reading and see if we get yeah. any more clarity on that but um yeah, that's good because that isn't how I I read it. So, it, but it's, I do understand why you're saying that because the implications felt it could be interesting in terms of you know then how you think about the relationship more generally between between matter and meaning. 
Stiegler is fucking up my ability to talk about this issue. Okay. Well, that's fun. Because I can't, you can't completely attribute anything to the human. Yes. I think that's what I was trying to say earlier. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. About, about the whole anthropo, like the, um, the location of, of the anthropos within the kind of, yeah. Like, what are we actually talking about when we talk about the human? We don't, it's problematizing that notion. Well, that's even more disturbing in a way, right? Because it's not yeah. just, it's not just like, oh, you know, it's a pretty good system overall, but we've got these fucking crazy monkeys with language out there ca- causing a ruckus. That account of, of things is again, too anthropocentric because the whole, <laughs> the whole thing gave, gave birth to this monstrosity. What do you do with that theologically? Yeah. That's a- well, I think a different way of looking at that is going back to those four statements, uh, physics and um, humanism and logocentrism, mm-hmm. is that actually if you work backwards and you say you're not logocentrism, I think it's your point. You, you, you break down the idea of humanism and you break down the idea of a kind of metaphysics. Um, and so then you're not quite sure the grounds on which you speak or which you could talk about um, being or existence or things like that. Okay. I... <laughs> <laughs> to that point, I have nothing left to say. We've done our work. That was good, Matt. I really, I'm really enjoying this work. I have to say, it's very stretching. It does feel stretching. Um, so, when I find myself just kind of staring at the ceiling, waiting for the words to come, it's like something's happening in that space. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I- I'd love to keep going with this if you're if you're up for keeping going. As well, in, like, read the next chapter and. Oh yeah, we have to. Yeah. Nice one. All right, well, I'll send you another invite then for um, three weeks' time. Yeah, perfect. All right, man, have a good one. Yeah, you too, man. Take care. Cheers.